0: Four. Now we're in our flashback mode So I thought we were in chapter 14 Well we were And then last week We jumped all the way back to Matthew chapter 3 And by way of explanation that I shared last week Was that when we first began our red letter studies At the beginning of 2018 uh, it, We began in chapter 5 Because that's where things really seemed to kick off There with the Sermon on the Mount Okay But As we progressed in our studies, it had occurred to me that, you know, there's no way that you can rightly, and we shared this again last week, there's no way that you can rightly separate the teachings of Jesus from the life that Jesus lived, because there's quite a bit that he taught just in the things that he did and in the way that he actually lived his life, the way that he treated others, uh, how he acted towards them, his mercy, his compassion his instruction, and even his correction. And so as that came to light, then when we rebooted our, our satellite Bible study over at Whispering Chase, which we do now every Tuesday afternoon, and so far that has been a tremendous blessing. We had a decent crowd there today also. And so he decided that we were going to go back to where Jesus actually began to teach, at least within uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and that is in chapter 3. And so last week, we talked about how he arrived on the scene of John's baptism. John was at the height of his ministry or at the pinnacle of his ministry. And Jesus arrived to be baptized of John and how that there were three or four lessons. There two or three at least that came out of that one event alone. Not the least of which was that it sort of marked the transition, the beginning of the end of John the Baptist's ministry and the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Because as he went down into the water to be baptized by John and he came up out of the water, as we read at the tail end of chapter 3, in the last three verses, that, or in the last two verses, Jesus came up out of the water and then the heavens opened and the Spirit of God appeared and descended like a dove and lighted upon him. And that became the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for him. And then the voice of God, the Father speaking out of heaven, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, right after that, because we had those lessons and we covered those last week. But immediately after that, we go right into verse four. There's no real there's no real delay here. It just picks right up verse four or chapter four, verse one begins. Then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Stop right there. The very first lesson comes out in verse one of chapter four. And that is that Jesus was not only filled with the spirit in the previous chapter, verse 16, but he was also led of the spirit and he was led of the spirit because he was filled of the spirit. He was filled with the spirit and that we understand from elsewhere in the New Testament that They who are led by the Spirit of God, they shall be called the sons of God. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they shall be the sons of God. And so Jesus's first lesson from chapter four was that he was willingly led by the Spirit. The Spirit guided him, drove him, led him in some way, compelled or impelled him. Go up into the wilderness and the devil is going to tempt you there. Now, mark that word before we, before we get uh, much further in this chapter. Mark that word tempt and remember what it means. It means it's something that actually has a hook in you and has some kind of appeal to you. Remember that as we get further in this chapter. So let's read that again. Then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, He was afterward and hungered. Now, that's that's one of those. You win the Internet for being obvious statements, you know, no food for 40 days. Do you think really he was hungered? Really? You you, you kind of think he might have been. Well, of course, 40 days is just about the absolute limit of human endurance for fasting. It's right about at 40 days, maybe depending on the strength and the physiology of the individual. It's right at about 40 days when your eyesight starts to shut down and your organs start failing at various points. I can't say which ones go first, but I do know that your eyesight begins to fail. I have been told at 40 days. And so while Jesus was not subject to death, he did not have to worry about dying because he had no sin and therefore death could not take him unless he willingly gave up the ghost. While he was not subject to death, you can guarantee that he was physically exhausted. There was no physical strength hardly left in this man, our Lord. Now, why is that important? Why are we bringing that out? Remember how we talked about a little bit on Sunday morning, I think it was, how every human being is an individual trinity. We are all made up of body, soul, and spirit. Every individual human has a body, a soul, and a spirit. And we kind of hashed that out somewhat well. When you are a trinity, which you are, then whatever affects one part of your person, your trinity, will affect the other parts either directly or indirectly and either immediately or somewhere to the long term. There is nothing that affects the body that will not in some way affect the soul or the spirit. Likewise, there's nothing that affects the soul or the spirit that will not in some way impact the body eventually, if not immediately. And if you don't believe me, Work a night shift and don't get enough sleep for about a year, year and a half or so and see the things that it begins to do to your spirit. The crazy thoughts... I mean the crazy thoughts that will come into your head at 3 o'clock in the morning when you are supposed to be sleeping like a normal human being, but you're running a machine somewhere on a night shift. I'm not saying that it's wrong or a sin. I've done it myself. You do what you have to do to make a living. I'm just saying that it has an effect. And when people don't get enough sleep, when people don't get enough rest, it can really wonk you out upstairs. It really can. It really can. And then not just that, it can begin to impact the health of your body as well. And it can impact all all manner of things. And so it's all interconnected. It's all inter. It's all interwoven together. So Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't have any physical strength to work with at that point. He didn't have any carnal resolve. He didn't have any stubbornness of will. He had none of those natural Let's be kind and call them resources. He didn't have any of those natural resources, if you will, to work with in his confrontation with the devil. Now, let's move on to the next verse. Verse three says, and when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Okay. now, how do we want to approach this? Because there's several lessons in all of this and they're all layered. They all kind of overlap one another and they're all good. And there's the there's the the basic face value lesson of Jesus's response. But we want to dig a little deeper than that, don't we? Because we've all read this before. I'm sure most of us have. I'm pretty sure every single one of us here in this church tonight have read Matthew one or more times. In the course of our Christian lives. And so we're familiar with the encounter. We know that he tried to tempt him to make bread. Jesus said, It's written, man shall not live by bread alone. We'll get to that here in a moment. And then the other two temptations uh, cast yourself down off of this pinnacle of the temple because it's written that the angels will bear you up. And Jesus said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And then he said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just worship me. And Jesus said, Get thee hence, Satan. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. And Those are valid, rock-solid lessons, and we're going to dig into them. But I want to look at more than just those. I want to look at all of the little implications in this because this is good, good stuff. Look at this. So the tempter came to him and said, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones be made bread. Well, this was an attack on two fronts. Or not on two fronts, but maybe... But an attack from maybe two different angles. That might be a little bit more accurate way to put it. He was attacking his identity. He was trying to find a sense of pride to appeal to. If you're the son of God, I don't really believe that you're the son. Of God. Well, the devil knew good and well he was the son of God. There was no doubt about that. That was a given. It was a foregone conclusion and the devil knew. But why not try to sow some self-doubt in there and see if he's vulnerable to that? And the devil's very, I don't want to say he's good at it because I don't want to give him any credit, but he certainly does a lot of that, doesn't he? You're not good enough or whatever to, and then you fill in the blank, whatever it might be. Something that God has laid upon a person's heart to do for him or something like that. So he comes in and says, well, you're not good enough. You're not worthy of it. You're not this. You're not that you're not whatever. And so he was trying to sow some self-doubt and appeal to some kind of a sense of pride. And he used Jesus's physical weakness and hunger as an avenue to do that with. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. You don't think that it was tempting to being the son of God to just snap his fingers or wiggle his nose or speak the words or whatever he would have done and change miraculously as he had done with the water into the wine to do the same thing with some rocks and turn them into bread? I guarantee you, it was a real temptation. Jesus was the Son of God, is the Son of God, yes. But he was also every bit human. And there wasn't a single temptation, there wasn't a single natural temptation that faces the human race today, individual humans today, that Jesus did not face himself in his 33 or so years on the earth. And this was one of them 40 days, 40 nights without food. Now, he wasn't without water, but he was without food. And so here he comes. Here comes the tempter. Here comes the devil, the accuser he says, if you be the son of God, command these stones be made bread. But then right in the next verse, we find the right way to engage in spiritual warfare. Let's read this response. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now, before we actually look at that lesson itself, Let's look at the tactic that Jesus used, not to reduce it to merely a tactic. okay? but tactics are what you use in battle. If you've ever been in war, there are battle tactics and you have tacticians that calculate tactics and and theorize and strategize and then mobilize the troops to act accordingly. Well, Jesus relied upon a rock solid tactic And that is, especially in the state of his physical weakness, which I'm sure didn't make thinking very easy. You ever tried to concentrate on something when you are very hungry? I'm terrible without food. I can't focus on a crying thing. I can tie my shoes and make sure I have, you know, the right, you know, the same color socks on. But much beyond that, if I'm on an empty stomach, I'm not good for a whole lot. Ask my wife. She'll tell you And. Anyway, we'll go on away from that. But he relied on the word. He invoked the unchanging, never changing word of God. Let's read it again. But he answered and said, it is written. So that was the key right there. Not that he said it is written, but the key was he went to the word of God to refute and resist the devil's temptation. Of course, Jesus was the son of God. He didn't need to prove it. He knew good and well who he was. I don't think that there was any self-doubt that was even possible there. He knew who he was before he ever walked into the water. It's like if, if there had been any doubt, John the Baptist would have removed it by saying, I have need to be baptized of thee. You remember that when he went to the river to, or the water that John was at, baptizing people to be baptized. And so it's very unlikely that that... that that self-doubt could have even entered in, but he had appealed also to his identity and to his sense of physical hunger and weakness. And so Jesus went to the Word because the Word doesn't care. That's the awesome thing about the Word. It's unchanging. It never changes. doesn't change for anyone. The only time it changes is when people attack it and change it themselves. But the Word itself does not change. People can try to corrupt it, they can pollute it, they can can come up with their their, uh, highly unreliable and dubious alternate translations, and I'm not saying that they're all bad, okay? But the Word of God is eternal and is everlasting. The Word tells us as much, and we know by faith that it is true. And the longer you live for God, the less it's even by faith, because the more you live it and experience it, it becomes ironclad proof in your own life. The word does not change. And this is why that's a tremendous blessing. Because when you are in the fog of war, when you as a believer are in the fog of spiritual war, and it's hard to think, and it's hard to reason, and you're just not sure what you're supposed to do, that thing is never confused. It's never confused. And when you know where to look, which, if you are given to reading the Word and hiding it in your mind and then hiding it in your heart, it usually follows that progression. I know I beat that drum a lot. But when you are given to reading the Word, what you are effectively doing is arming the Holy Spirit in you with knowledge of the Scriptures. Now, the Holy Spirit has all knowledge, but you don't. None of us do. And so when the Spirit of God dwells in us, if we know the Word of God he can recall that scripture to mind. And this is one reason why the word of God is likened unto a sword, okay? Because it cuts through all of the confusion and the haze and the mental chaos of a battle a lot of times. Say, for example, and let me pick a a good big obvious one, okay? Uh, Do I want to use that one? Do I want to use that one? All right, let's use a boyfriend-girlfriend situation, Okay. She's a dating scenario. You got a Christian man and he likes this girl. She better be a Christian or you're just flirting with trouble. Okay, a Christian ought to be with Christian. You, you you start mixing that up and you're sowing the seeds for a disaster. Uh, that's a different uh, study for a different time. But you got a Christian man and he likes a Christian girl and he's dating this Christian girl and the Christian girl's dating him and they're liking each other and they're doing it right and they're doing it safe and they're being wise and they're being... Um, They're being very conscientious of their Christian testimony before the world as well as the church. Do you know where I'm going with this? You know, so they're not parking somewhere and making out in the back seat of their car or front seat for that matter. I don't know if people still do that. Humans are humans. They probably still do. But they're not doing that because while they know that a kiss is not fornication, you're still stoking flames you can't lawfully satisfy until somebody says I do in a wedding. Got to get that context right. It's like, okay, I'll just say I do in the car. No, 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 no. Do things right. Okay. But they're dating one another. And and it's maybe it's one of those prolonged, protracted engagements that's always baffled me. I've never understood why people do that. But then the men in my family have always moved very fast. And that's not always wise. So I'm not finding fault. It's just one of those things that kind of always went over my head, but it doesn't mean that it's not wise. Sometimes it can be very necessary and it can be wise. But let's say it's one of those. And so it's like some three year, four year prolonged thing. And uh, and the flesh is getting frustrated because that's what it does. Okay, And so... They can't get married yet because maybe there's money problems, not quite, we don't really have a clear path to this thing yet, but it's gonna be six more months. And things start getting heated and things start getting confused. Well, we know automatically from the word of God that God is not the author of confusion. So if there's confusion in the mind of the believer, it has not come from God. It has come either from the flesh from the world, or from the devil, or from two or all three of those. Some combination of the three, okay? And so, the Christian in his fogged reasoning, or her fogged reasoning, because while women and men are different, appetites are, can be much the same. They really can. Okay, so it's not just men. It's men and women. Either the Christian man or the Christian woman, there's some confusion there, there's frustration there. And so in in that fog, your reasoning gets clouded and your thinking gets clouded and you get to thinking, well, it isn't fornication if we don't go all the way. This is how the carnal mind works spiritual mind doesn't work like this, but this is how the carnal mind works. That wouldn't afflict me. I'm a Christian. Well, you live in a human body, and so your body will at times try to override your spirituality. It's up to us whether or not we actually let that happen. It's up to us individually as Christians as whether or not that happens. But that's the kind of thinking that a direction can go in, and so when that happens... Then question marks pop into the mind and you're like, all right, well, what's right and what's wrong? And that's when you start looking for the line between right and wrong on any one thing in your life, right? That's when you start looking for the line. This is right. This is wrong. I want black and white binary. I don't want any questions in my mind. Okay. When you're in that battle, you go to the word. You go to the word. And say in the the instance of the example that we're using here, the example of temptation to fornicate, which is um, sexual activity outside of the bounds of a lawful, healthy, etc. marriage. You go to the Word and you read about what Jesus said concerning a man lusting after a woman. Looking at a woman to lust after her in her heart. And you go to the words of the various apostles that talked about fleeing fornication and abstaining fornication. You find it all throughout the word, you find it all throughout the New Testament, especially. We are always, we are always instructed in the Word to keep ourselves pure. Now, before you jump off the cliff of the other extreme, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about compelled permanent celibacy. We all got here somehow. Your mom and your dad got frisky. There's no getting around that. Sex is not a sin. But it's got to be between a man and his wife, right? It has to be between a man and his wife. If it's between a man and anybody other than his wife, it's fornication. If the man is married, it's worse than that. It's adultery. Or if the person he's fooling with is married, then it's adultery. So we understand all of that. And I think we, we all have that pretty well ironed out. There's very little clouding. There's very little confusion in that very little question in that no gray areas really. But what's the point here? Jesus relied on the word. So it doesn't matter how hot the battle is. It doesn't matter how confusing the fog of spiritual warfare is. It doesn't even matter how strong the temptation is when you are resolved to do what is right, or at least you're resolved to know what is right so that you can do what is right, you go to the Word because the Word never changes and will never, ever fail you. Even when your flesh absolutely wants to fail you. And there's times where a person will know what's right and then they may make the choice to do wrong anyway. But when you rely on the Word so that you can do what is right, then you can't go wrong. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And so, well, what's that lesson right there? We're not going to just skip over that because that's the one we've always read. What was Jesus saying here? Now, well, actually, let me ask this question first before we go into that. Would it have been a sin... Would it have been wrong for Jesus to make the stones into bread? I don't particularly think so. But why do anything that the devil asks you to do or tells you to do? You know, it's like, I think, I'm not saying that this was Jesus' thinking necessarily, but, you know, devil, you're going to come up to me on my father's world and you're going to question who I am and then tell me to do a magic trick just to prove to you who I am. I mean, that was actually kind of insulting. That was kind of gutsy of the devil, but he's been gutsy since day one. So it shouldn't surprise us. But Jesus' message here was man shall not live by bread alone. So the devil came at him with a carnal attack and Jesus answered him with a spiritual answer. That's really clever. I mean, that's really flipping the game board around. That's really turning the tables on the adversary. You come up to me with a, with, a, with a carnal battle, devil, and I'm going to give you a spiritual answer to that. He says, man shall not live by bread. It's almost like sticking it in the devil's face. It doesn't matter that I'm hungry, devil. It doesn't matter that I'm 40 days without food. I'm not doing anything that you, that you want me to do. You're the enemy. You led a rebellion in heaven. You provoked the fall of the human race which was made in the image of my Father. I'm not doing anything that you say. and So he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And the deeper message in this lesson is that it takes more than a sandwich from Silvermine or Jimmy John's to get by in this life. So what do you mean? I thought that's all I needed is a roof over my head, clothes on my back, food in my stomach. I've got pretty much everything I need, not for your life to be worth anything. Because human beings, we spend our lives looking for meaning and for purpose and for some kind of a reason to be on the earth. I mean, it's the age old question. It's as old. It's as old as humanity that has been born from a woman's womb. Okay. why am I here? Adam didn't ask that question, I don't think. I don't think Eve did either because I think they knew from the, from the moment they were created, okay? But I think Seth answered that question. I think Cain and Abel both probably asked those questions. Why are we here? And why is this hard? And what? why do things hurt? And you know, why do I get hungry? And you know, Adam and Eve had to give them all those explanations. Well, son, it's a long story. We blew it. How'd you like to have to be the parents that explain that to your kids, and your grandkids, and your great grandkids, and your great great grandkids? Because that's how long these cats lived. They lived a long time in the in the ages before the flood, or in the in the centuries preceding the flood. But it takes more than just the food of our bodies and the stuff, the rudiments of the of, of the things that we own in order for our lives to have any kind of purpose or any kind of meaning. It takes something greater than that. And every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, this is the stuff that imbues our life with actual meaning and purpose. Because what does the Bible tell us? That faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, right? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing in hearing, by the Word of God. And when we hear the Word of God and we read the Word of God, the Word of God finds a lodging place first in our minds, as we so often talked about. It finds a lodging place in our minds and then from our minds, if we don't just bottleneck it there and just count it as data and information sitting on our mental bookshelves. If I don't know if, you have, uh, if you're familiar with the practice of mind palaces and stuff like that. It's a memory technique. It's thousands of years old. But if you don't just bottleneck it there, but you let it actually all the way down into your heart and you make it, you let it and make it become a part of who you are. That's the transformative part right there. And that's when you fulfill what James talks about, the brother of Jesus over in the book of James, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Well, you can't be a doer of the word until you have embraced Every word of the father's many words as you've heard anyway, because there's an awful lot there. But when you hear something from the word of God, when you hear every word or a word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, as Jesus says here in four verse four, when you hear it and you embrace it and incorporate it into who you are, man, that's where the change happens. And that's where things transform. And that's where you experience that spiritual growth. And It becomes part of you. How many things did you learn in high school, junior high, elementary school? How many things did you, did you learn that you remembered the next year? Oh, let me ask this one, because this is where I'm most guilty, okay? I don't mind incriminating myself. Suffer me a little bit of folly, all right, for the sake of humility and instruction. Reverend Ryder. you and I, I think we can relate to this. How much did you remember from tech school after every test? Not much. You were just trying to get through the test and then get into the next unit. So you probably did like I did after every exam, which we had one once a week. I did a complete data dump to make room for the next load of information. We can't do that as Christians. We can't because. It's just data in the head and then it falls out your head. And then what what in the world good is it? And what good is it if we never act on it? This one thing Jesus said. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. What does it take to really live a life? Now, there are people that take their lives every day. There are people that end their lives every day that had money, had food, had a decent home, maybe even a beautiful home, had a nice car, had every, had, they had bread. Let's just roll roll that up all under the category of bread. They had it. But their lives were still empty. Devoid of meaning, devoid of purpose. Never could answer the question of why am I here? But when you sustain yourself on the everlasting word of God, when you sustain yourself on every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, your life begins to... It always had a purpose, but you begin to realize that purpose. Does that make sense? You know, it always had a purpose. God didn't just bring you into the world as an accident. He didn't bring anybody into the world as an accident. He has had a plan for everyone. That's a firm conviction that I've got. We are all come into the kingdom, as it were, for such a time as this. There's a reason why, rather alone, you weren't born 400 years ago. There's a reason why I wasn't born uh, during the middle ages or during the dark ages. I think those overlap. They're not necessarily the same thing. There's a reason why we didn't live 5,000 years ago. We may not know what that reason is beyond just the very basic because God wanted me on the earth now. Because God wanted me here today. Not 1,000 or 4,000 years ago. But we don't... Realize that means to make real It doesn't mean to just understand it in the mind. It means to make something real. Okay, we don't realize that purpose, that call, that intent, that design until we have begun to feed ourselves and to sustain ourselves in soul and in spirit on every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the father. I was born with a purpose. I did not realize it until i began to feed on this and let this sustain my soul and then the lights came on and then maybe a different purpose it is a different purpose for every for every individual none of us are the same none of us are exactly the same god has an individual plan for every individual one of us but we've got to feed and sustain ourselves on the word that proceedeth from the mouth of god that's what sustains us that's what imbues, or at least realizes, helps us to realize meaning in our lives. And then we're no longer just motes of dust floating through the universe. We're no longer of such nihilistic mindsets that everything's accidental and therefore nothing has any, pe- any purpose or meaning whatsoever. Then We won't think those kinds of toxic, not just wrong thoughts, man. They are poisonous thoughts. Because people who embrace that kind of thing, they turn into monsters a lot of times in the the realms of morality and ethics and things like that because why not? If nothing means anything, then nothing means anything. And so why shouldn't I spend my days maximizing my pleasure and minimizing my pain and taking out all of my angst and frustration on the entire human race. And there are people that have been just like that. And they have done just that to their cultures and their societies around them. Absolute monsters that have taken other people's lives or made other people's lives miserable before they took them. The purpose of our life is realized in being sustained by every Word that proceeds out of the mouth of our God and Father. We'll pick it up next week. Be at the will of the Lord at the very next temptation where the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and does the same thing he just did, but he uses the word himself to attack Jesus. And then we'll read how Jesus beat that one. And I think we'll cover the next two probably in the next Bible study. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash dash giving